0: love talk radio I'm just doing a little introduction of you after Mozart. Okay, great. Okay, All right. I'm glad you're there. here, yeah. Hold on one moment. Uh, this is Mitchell J. Rabin for a Better World. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to have another very interesting show. We have invited to be our guest for the hour the author of Why the Dalai Lama Matters: His Act of Truth as the Solution for China, Tibet, and the world, Robert Thurman. Robert Thurman, as many of you know, is professor of Indo-Tibetan studies at Columbia University and he will be with us today, as I mentioned, to discuss the Dalai Lama, who he is, who he and what he represents, and the impact that the Dalai Lama has had and can have on world politics, and on world planetary well-being. Robert Thurman has been noted in the New York Times Magazine as, quote, the Dalai Lama's man in America, and having been named by Time Magazine as one of the 25 most influential Americans. Another few words about our guest today, Robert has cultivated a worldwide awareness of Tibet through his writing and translation of important Buddhist texts, and his activism. Robert Thurman is the co-founder with Richard Gere of Tibet House U.S., and currently serves as the president of its board of trustees. Robert has dedicated his life to the study and preservation of Tibet's cultural heritage, and is the first American ever ordained as a Tibetan monk. All this along with his 45-year-old friendship with the Dalai Lama makes him the perfect voice for Tibet and its quest for freedom. Robert Thurman is also the president of the American Institute of Buddhist Studies, a nonprofit affiliated with the Center for Buddhist Studies at Columbia University, where he has uh, been a tenured professor for many, many years. So, Robert Thurman, welcome to A Better World. It's a pleasure to have you.
1: Well, thank you, Mitchell. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: I'm so glad. You know, uh, I don't know if you recall, there's no reason you should, but we actually met back in the early 1980s at a Tibetan medicine seminar that you were uh, doing the translation for Dr. Yeshi Danden at that time, His is, uh personal physician. So I uh, had yes, the pleasure of meeting I remember you. remember that. I do yeah. remember, but uh, yeah. we didn't...
1: Um... And- Follow up after that, but I remember that time. Was that at Omega?
0: No, actually, it was in a little loft down on Houston Street.
1: Oh, wow. In the West
0: Village. (laughs) It was a very very beautiful setting. (laughs) Yeah. So, anyway, we've had the pleasure of meeting each other many times ever since at the Tibet House and the Tibet House auctions and the like but I'm very oh, glad that's to have great. you on. well, I'm glad
1: you come to them we need people to come wonderful we have another one yes, on December six.
0: yes exactly I'll be there and I every year Bob I offer uh, various therapeutic services I dedicate to the Tibet house um, oh
1: that, wonderful uh, I think great. even
0: your your daughter Uma bought the last one so oh she good wonderful for a, for a session So, listen, I would love to uh, dive into the matter at hand, Why the Dalai Lama Matters. It's a provocative book that, of course, scans your personal history with meeting the Dalai Lama some, you know, 45-plus years ago, and the story about the two of you and you being a student and your relationship to Tibetan Buddhism and your experience as a monk for a period of time before you returned to the United States and decided to get married and have children. It's a very interesting revealing text about a lot about your life and about the Dalai Lama's and (laughs) what an extraordinary being he is. Well, I I can say you both are, but... uh, you really make a case for the Dalai Lama being really central in leading us as a planet to our next level. I'd like to just kind of open up the conversation to hear what it is you would like us, the audience, to really grasp from these points that you're making here.
1: Right, right. Well, um, I guess the main point, the main bottom line is, that we've reached a time in history when war no longer works, which is not only the theory of the the Dalai Lama, but also a lot of really forward-thinking persons. And the one who articulated it in Western terms most forcefully, I think, is Jonathan Schell, Mm -hmm. S-C-H-E-L-L, the great writer who wrote The Fate of the Earth and a wonderful guy. And he wrote a book called *The Unconquerable World: Power, Nonviolence, and the Will of the People*, uh, in which he drawing he draws only from Western sources, including people like von Clausewitz, the theorist, the Prussian theorist of 19th century theorist of war, uh, and uh, not from Gandhi and not from Dalai Lama, just from Western sources, especially basing his his work on his observation of the current situation and on the european eastern european velvet revolution how they got rid of the yeah. russian occupation without firing a shot uh, finally and uh, he proves that war doesn't work uh, basically his thesis being that modern warfare the equipment of modern warfare the the weapons are so powerful now that no one can win it that the winner loses their environment and they lose uh, they lose the air and they become radioactive yeah. because yeah. it's a it's a mutual assured destruction type of thing partly I, and also partly because everybody knows everything because of the internet and the transparency and the and the traveling all over the world by everybody so it's just, so governments that want to do war irresponsible leaders who want to make wars have a hard time demonizing some other race or nation or something. It's still doable a little bit, but but it, it it's a very harder for them because people know it's that the other people it's are really human. As
0: a, right. It's weakening as the whole idea of creating like the Soviet monster, the way you know, the United right. States government did many years ago. To demonize is not the same thing anymore because of that That's right. So There still is, unfortunately, a
1: bit of it about the Muslims and by the Muslim extremists, about everybody else. But, uh, you know, the, here and there those are the worst cases. And some other cases in India, too, between Hindus and Muslims. Even between Buddhists yeah. and Muslims in Burma and, uh, and, and uh, Sri Lanka. But it's harder and basically, globally, it can't be done. So... That is the pieces now, within that context that the world has to learn and figure out how to solve conflict which will not go away through dialogue, through compromise, through negotiation, through arbitration, and without and, and violence you know war type violence becomes undoable in yes. that context, the Dalai Lama becomes a very critical world leader who has spoken out from the beginning of his life, and actually for many lives against violence from a buddhist point of view and a non-violence point of view has has all, has has demanded has argued has pleaded for tibet to become a zone of non-violence and a himsa zone would demilitarize completely to create a buffer between the big powers of india and china and russia and uh, and iran and um, and you know, that this message of his and this this crusade of his non-violent crusade Responding to the genocide that the Chinese Communist Party is committing and has been committing for half a century in tibet with with the silent turning away of all the other world powers because of their greed over China and wish to do business with China and fear probably in india 's case um mm-hmm. And so this this campaign of his is critical for world survival is my argument. And yes. therefore he is someone who has to be listened to and he, he he provides a method and a path. And then in specific I focus on his offer to the Chinese to remain part of China with a genuine autonomy like Hong Kong has, you know one party two one country two systems. Yes. And to yes. remain within China and to monitor and to repair the Tibetan environment, which Chinese colonization has ruined, and to help the Chinese rekindle their own spirituality and make the leaders more popular with the people who are because they 're not popular now they they 're kind of strange kind of communist capitalist oligarchy, the communist Party is yeah. now who are domineering yeah. over the other capitalist Chinese. And yet, trying to claim the mantle of Mao or whatever, but they're not communists anymore. They're a bunch of super capitalists, and it's completely silly. And so, they only resort is to is to get into nationalism and threaten Japan and talk about America as their enemy. And eventually, they'll be threatening Russia to try to take more land for their people and so on, threatening Philippines and and um, Taiwan and et cetera. So and and India even. And uh, this is the, those, those are the crazies, the, the Dick Cheneys of China behaving like that. But so far, yeah. the political people have kept held them back, the Chinese political people. And I think that the new administration in China will maybe listen. Hu Jintao's administration wouldn't listen to my offer uh, about how it's a win for China to change their policy and be nice to the Dalai Lama and listen to him and listen to him how war is no longer the way to go on the planet. And become a model of a peaceful. What they, they you know, Hu Jintao had the slogan of peaceful rise of China as an economy, but the Chinese yeah. behavior is far from peaceful. Still in Tibet is terrible, and that's a, the Tibetans are like canaries in the coal mine of how China will treat anybody else that they have power over, and that's why people are afraid of them and their periphery: the Japanese, the Russians, the Vietnamese, the Thais, Cambodians, sure. Indians. The only ones who like them are Pakistanis, who they, which is a failed state anyway, and who, are, who, you, who like them because they're making a common enemy against India. And so, yeah. uh, so this is the – when people have read my book, even in – the reason I wrote that book is that I noticed that people, even in the Tibet movement, they, used to, they, say, they say, you know, China out of Tibet, Tibet should be free, they get all excited. And then you ask them, yeah. well, do you think China will get out of Tibet? And then they say, "Oh no, probably impossible, can't work." And why? Because it would be such a loss of face for China; it would be such a loss for them. So I wrote this book because I follow His Holiness's vision that it would be a win for China. It would be not only a spiritual and an ethical win, it would be a public relations win that would be huge. They couldn't pay 10 public relations firms worldwide to give them such a good reputation and to allay the fears yeah. of so many other nations about about China wanting to be the global emperor. Uh, they couldn't do that for billions of dollars, as they would get oh, when right. they themselves change their policy, be friends of the Dalai Lama, Liberate the Tibetan people within, of course, the Chinese Union uh, as, a, as, a, as an independ- autonomous republic, like Hong Kong, as an autonomous region, and yeah. uh, and they would solve their Taiwan problem, their Uyghur problem, their neighbor problem, and internally, it would make their own, make them able to be able to relax more with their own people, maybe devolve power a little bit, and um, and stop being such an extreme dictatorship and so on. And it would really make the 21st century to be a century of peace and and prosperity that the Dalai Lama sees the planet as capable of having, you know, dealing with our real problems, which are global warming and economic poverty uh, in many parts of the planet. And So, that, so that's it. And people, exactly. people who have read it, in the, at least in the Tibet movement, who have talked to me about it, they said, gee whiz, Bob, now thank you for the book because now I do see how although I'm not convinced that it necessarily will happen because I'm still cynical about what human beings are capable of, but I see now that it could happen because some Chinese leader would see it in his his own interest and in the interest of China to be kind and generous and liberating to Tibet instead of dominating and destructing.
0: Well, yeah, I I totally agree, and I I think it's completely brilliant, Bob, of... Uh, to put this offer on the table. One of the things that I think you're highlighting here that many of us really feel we know in our heart and soul is that the dominator model no longer works, and it begs the question, yeah. as does about war, did it ever work? And rather than opening that, con- that conversation up, let's just a- agree that war doesn't work, the uh, dominator model no longer works but uh, an atmosphere across the planet of cooperation among nations that we're all, if you will, on the same side. It's, you could say, the human side, and we can all prosper together in that way and have games for sure. It could be the Olympics. It could be sports and competitions, but not having to do with threatening each other's survival.
1: That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Very, now, very are you correct. Telling me that and of course, you, the big yeah. thing that that yeah. expression dominator model relates to the wonderful work of uh, you know the Chalice and the Blade. Um, yeah, yeah, Rian Rian right. And uh, Rihanna Eisler's yeah. wonderful work—the idea of a partnership society where women have exactly. equal power to men. Well, I'm men not very much into out. that. He even constantly talks about how he probably will reincarnate as a woman. He's makes he's been more and more saying that lately. Because he feels that women need a special boost because they're less likely to be violent and knee jerk, freak That's out like right. men. Uh, and they are not been. They are sure. not of equal power. And actually, I am a for, total believer in that. That the, all the difficult, the worst poverty, and the worst unrest, and the worst unhappiness on the planet is in areas of the planet where the cultures are domineering over women and suppressing of them, and forcing them to have too many Indeed. children, and and not giving Indeed. them a voice in the direction of society. And uh, and so I totally agree. am I'm, I'm totally into that. And um, I just want to say, yeah. like when you say yeah. offer on the table, I just want to be clear that I have no official. Yeah. I have known His Holiness for 49 years, but I have no yeah. official role. I'm not a spokesperson. I'm not uh, designated. He has his own people, yeah. and he gives his own things. Yeah. But the reason I wrote sure. the book is that I think perhaps in a kind of Asian reticence, neither he nor his people who worked for him had put together all of the – demands he had made and the offers he had made in his speeches over the years into like a five-point plan. You know, he had given a five-point, they did make a five-point plan in 1987 at the U.S. Congress where they said zone of peace and environmental control and all this, and then Mm -hmm. he amplified that in the European Parliament in 1988, and he sort of, that was what he offered, but he didn't say what he could offer to the Chinese in exchange for that and, uh, and it was never put in a kind of white paper or something, um yes. at the time I wrote that book. And so I felt it was necessary, and I had the book translated in Chinese. I sent it to the secretariat of Hu Jintao, and I have indirect evidence that he might have, they might have taken note of it, although they didn't respond to it. And unfortunately, Hu Jintao oh. did not take the, take the, take the offer because you know the which which of course wouldn't have been taken from me but i mean the plan for the offer sure. was put there he would have he yes. would have done it from dalai lama but the point is which is too bad because if he had done that I swore in the in the book that one of the things that he would get, that China would get, is the sitting president of China who changes China's policy to be friendly and favorable to the Dalai Lama and do what he requests for his people, which is to say liberate them on the ground in their daily life, in their culture, in their religion, uh, while keeping... Yeah protectorate in Tibet, and and helping repair the damage that they have caused by trying to colonize this high three-mile-high country, which they can't live in anyway. And that person who did that would get a Nobel Peace Prize. I guaranteed it. And I guaranteed it on a reasoning basis, not on I don't give it, unfortunately. The Norwegians give it. But I guaranteed it in that I know that the Dalai Lama himself would nominate and um, and yes. Tutu and all of the no- all of the reward- awardees, the sure. Nobel Prize uh, 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 laureates, would nominate because they would, and their nomination is the most important to the committee. It was the yeah. past past laureates, when they oh, all the say, "Oh, so it's, yeah, that's a very powerful committee," maybe, and you know, maybe and, maybe and then they so- think he could let out of jail Liu Xiaobo, who did get a Nobel Peace Prize, the wonderful intellectual who wrote Charter two thousand and eight for China, yeah. you know, a democratic China, uh, who has been in languishing in prison ever since. And then the Dalai Lama, who would become their citizen openly, uh, there would be three Nobel Prize laureates the Chinese would have. The president, Liu Xiaobo, the intellectual, uh, you know, the Vaclav Havel of China, and the Dalai Lama, who's kind of the Vaclav yeah. Havel of the world, you know, was a great friend of right. Vaclav Havel, exactly. of course. Yeah. And he's the yeah. Vaclav Havel himself. And so I just wanted yeah. to be clear that I'm not a making any offer to anybody. I'm just a professor of religion. And I I just just couldn't stand it that people even who are supporters of Tibet had given up in their heart of hearts about the Tibetan cause. And I wanted to show that it was like... But unfortunately, Hu Jintao... And I I thought that Hu Jintao, who's been quite harsh against the Tibetans, when he was party boss in Tibet, he was very harsh... But I thought that Hu Jintao could do like Nixon, who was a big anti-communist, and then became the one to go and talk to Mao. I thought that exactly. that Hu Jintao, being a big anti-Tibet, could go and be and brave the, the, his own colleagues in the Politburo and in the PLA, milita- Chinese military, and say, I can be tough, but it's much more in our interest to be gentle and peaceful with the Dalai Lama. But then I used exactly. to make a joke when I would give speeches about the book, and I would yeah. say, if Hu... Doesn't want our Nobel Peace Prize. We'll have to give it to whoever. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, I know it's a silly joke. That was my joke. Okay,
0: okay. I appreciate. I appreciate silly jokes. I make them all the time. In fact, here's one now. Maybe President Obama could offer his Nobel Peace Prize to the President of China. That's he a good idea. I think would be
1: nice in Tibet. I like that. Yes, After all. You know, he, you know, even when, even when Obama received it in his speech, if you remember the speech, he said, well, yes. it's very nice, and I like Gandhi, and it's, I want peace, and blah, blah, blah. But my problem is I'm the commander-in-chief, and we're in the middle of two exactly. wars. That's,
0: exactly. But on the other hand, I'm not he tried much to about
1: do that. It. He's, he got out of Iraq, which was a complete crime to start with, and a hopelessly useless right. intervention in a complete waste, and a crime That's too, true. killing so many people, and Very and true. Afghanistan, where there was some reason initially, but then it turned into also nonsense, he's trying to get out of that, and so, um, you know, he's you know, I don't completely abandon Obama as, a, as having peace somewhere in his mind, although he might have been a bit captured by our military-industrial complex during yeah. the process, one has to say, yeah. sadly.
0: I would say that. We are
1: spending
0: the hour Let me let everybody know that we are spending the okay. hour with the author of Why the Dalai Lama Matters, His Active Truth as the Solution for China, Tibet, and the World. Robert Thurman, this is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. We are here every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Please continue to join us. We're on Television in Manhattan every Tuesday night at ten thirty. More information on both at www.abetterworld.tv. If you don't get the newsletter yet, please sign up and join our A Better World family. So, yes, Robert, please continue.
1: Well, I forget what I was doing.
0: De- <laughs> okay, well, I know I would like to pick up. I would like to pick up on. Uh, uh, a a little section of your book at the beginning, actually, which by the way, I think it's a fabulous book, and it's really very much a call to action, but you you summarized where we are today I think very exquisitely, and I'd like to share that with the audience. I'll just read a little passage. We live in an era of extreme contrasts. Technology informs us more than ever, and yet makes us feel weaker and more frightened than before. The art of caring Uh for the sick seems more sophisticated than ever, and yet the food chain is becoming poisoned and the environment polluted. Pluralism on all levels seems more essential than ever, yet the cruelty of fanatic rages more violently than ever. Knowledge and technological advances have infinite potential to positively transform our world, yet all around us devastation, marches on. In this climate of manifold desperations, both quiet and shrill, the Dalai Lama seems to emerge from another civilization, to descend from another dimension, a living example of calm and emergency, patience and injury, cheerful intelligence and confusion, and dauntless optimism in the face of apparent doom. Inspired by Jesus, Mahatma Gandhi, and Martin Luther King, Jr., he carries on the tradition under the extreme duress of the half-century-long agony of Tibet. That's very powerful uh, summation of where we have come and the contrast, the, the titillating, if you will, contrast between the joys that we have through technology and the way it has robotized us computerized us in some ways to be rather unfeeling and mechanized and then you go on later to describe The Matrix as one of your favorite films that maybe you could go on about that and help to elucidate. Well,
1: uh, well the reason I like The Matrix uh, trilogy, although I, I needed a fourth Matrix, which they didn't make yet, although I hope they will and I hope I can consult yes. for them because they're so yes. brilliant. I love Trotsky brother and sister, they are such geniuses, and I and I really do. And but the fourth one is still needs to be done. But um, why I like it is that the 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 plausibility within the sci-fi setup of the program of the of the film of the living in a kind of virtual reality where uh, you can do these extraordinary things when you know that it's a virtual reality. And you, you don't think like when he's trained to do the martial arts by Morpheus. So you know, when Neo is trained, yeah. right, and then yeah. he gets knocked down and he's panting, and then Morpheus says, "Do you think you're breathing air?" And then the thing about jumping off and holding the helicopter and all of that, because he realizes yeah. it's a, he becomes eventually he pro, he merges with the programming of the virtual reality, and he can actually do things that you couldn't do in normal physical reality and uh, that image of the illusion like reality of course is how an enlightened being perceives the world and so training someone within that kind of uh, setting Gives people an imaginative, you know, simile or metaphor How you can say, you know, like in The Matrix You know, you could explain the behavior of the great adepts of the Buddhist history You know, the Mahasiddhas of India and Tibet and China and Japan yeah. and Korea you know, and Vietnam How they, the adepts who were able to do these remarkable things And... um because they're they're aware they're aware that they're living in a matrix, you know. Although in that case the matrix is Indeed. not created by computers, it's created by the collective mind, the mind. field of all beings, yes. not only human exactly. but also human, divine, demonic, uh, animal, yeah. etc. And so that's right. why I like the matrix particularly. I don't particularly go for the all the shooting and the you know the bombs and everything right, but in a way what right. I, I admire that though however because using the format of an action movie they got people into the theater uh, who normally yeah. would just go in to see the bombing and the shooting and they and they introduced them to the concept <laughs> that there yeah. might be an illusion in the middle of reality that if you exactly. learn about you can wake to you can live at a higher level and um, and that's great. But why I say there needs to be a fourth is that, you know, at the end of the third one, uh, Neo and Trinity fly up over the clouds and they see the sun is shining. And then they come back down into the thing to deal with the, you know, the computer headwaters there, remember? And poor Trinity gets killed, which really made me mad. I was upset about that, why she had to get suddenly like an octopus Tentacle in her heart. I didn't like that. And uh, but yeah. anyway, they're there. And then no uh, one did. The fourth one has to do with what is the larger matrix, because when they were flying like that, he was in his ordinary meat body or what John Perry Barlow calls. He was in meat space, not in the not in the in the matrix yeah. space. And yet, with his right. mind, he was blowing up those different octopuses that were chasing his ship. Remember he was they were all blowing up on fire and so he was yeah. able to use supernormal powers outside of the matrix in the matrix of life, if like you will. Like a city. Like a yeah. city, like an adept, even though he yeah. was blind, right. he was flying there. And so yeah. the, that that posed the possible possibility of a film where you would deal with the outer world as a matrix and he would try to clean up the planet. And you would see to a partnership possibly between the humans and the computers and that would to me would be the possible really great conclusion, triumphal right, conclusion, so like right. the triumph you know, if the triumph at the end of the Lord of the Rings, instead of leaving it kind right. of inconclusive like they did, where the architect talks to the oracle and he says, How long do you think this peace will last? I don't think it will last between the computers and the people, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so it's left open ended, you know. Because they they exactly, they, they exactly. want to it see a be the view of life, you know?
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. Let's, let's there is come, this remaining
1: work to be done within the world of the Matrix, that's all
0: That's i right. I'm saying.
1: That's right. What's,
0: what's we have a remaining
1: work is, to do in this world where we live.
0: Well, which is yeah, to see I it, think
1: maybe you should Especially if we have children and grandchildren. Film. Do you have children, Mitchell, and grandchildren? No, I do not. No. You don't? Well, you can adopt mine. I have too many. <laughs> we all are responsible for all the children so and grandchildren. That, except,
0: except that sort of like the Dalai Lama, I, I sort of feel that all beings are my brothers and sisters, you know? That's, so I feel like I, I'm part of the family. All your grandchildren, family. that's good.
1: New generation. That's Excellent. That's
0: right, exactly. I don't I don't limit well, it to limit. now the is the big turning you know, point, and stuff.
1: we have to accomplish this. In the next decade or two, we're pretty much doomed, you know, with the global warming and the whole thing. It's really bad.
0: Exactly. We're, we're, we're so much on a precipice, and it's so interesting that of all people that uh, have, a, the way you put it so nicely, Bob, in the book, a cheery intelligence in the face of such hardship and turmoil as we find ourselves in today. The Dalai Lama yes. really is exemplary and really can per the comments that you made, help through establishing a new relationship with China between China and Tibet yes. and China and the Dalai Lama liberate us yeah. in many different If they could only lanes. realize
1: that he's their best friend
0: and the, the leaders
1: shouldn't get themselves caught in the Marie Antoinette syndrome, what I call the Marie Antoinette syndrome, of thinking yeah. that they can keep their billions, their personal fortunes of billions, right? Wen Bao, who was 10 years the yeah. prime minister, right, in the last administration in China, you know, they, they, they got freaked out about the New York Times when it revealed that he's amassed, his family has amassed two or three billion personally, while he was prime minister wow. to be worrying about the poor people and how to help the workers and everything. Meanwhile, the family was slurping up billions. And they can't hang on to that with the, with the 1.3 billion poor Chinese who are going to be madder and madder about that, you know. Exactly. So exactly. the point is, if so they really, really shift now and go back to spirituality and Buddhism and patronize the Dalai Lama and have him working on their side and have him helping people and also a little bit sharing their power voluntarily while they have their power... <laughs> To exactly. share it as a gift, like the Lama said, an example. He just resigned point. as head of the government in exile, but it doesn't mean yeah. he doesn't still speak for his people. But it means he doesn't have official, controlling, dictatorial voice over the behavior of his government. That's right. You know, that and he said make he's going to be
0: easier for the Chinese. That should make it even yeah, easier and, for the and, you know, government to engage him.
1: It's so hard for them to give up power. Like someone like Mugabe is like a he's like a zombie president. You know. The guy's yeah. like 90 and he's like Ruined the country and he ruined the currency And oppressing right. the people In the horrible way but he just cannot give up power He's like stuck with on it You know even though he doesn't even enjoy it He sits there being paranoid all day But it's kind of a sickness that people get into you know
0: Yeah exactly it's a sickness And that's really the issue we're dealing with I mean you know From, an, uh, from a point of view Of Buddhist uh, Religion You could say that it's A um, it's a function of Maya. It's a part of the illusion of life that we're going to hold on to things permanently. And so it's interesting that Buddhist thought, and I really prefer to, I really love the way you framed Buddhism very much as uh, science and as psychology, which I have also Mm -hmm. been doing a long time. Not science as much as psychology. And when we look at this, I think people are. I think people are afraid, Bob, of the idea of another religion where the full under... Maybe you can help to elucidate this for our audience, that the better understanding of Buddhism is not as a religion at all, but you have a wonderful quote from the Dalai Lama that says it's only one-third religion, one-third science, and one-third ethics. Maybe you can uh, expound upon that.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, that is... uh that's correct, and uh, maybe even not even one-third, maybe one-sixth, although the way I, I would phrase it now is that Buddhism is a religion for those who, for whatever reason, cannot uh, use the services that Buddhism provides. Actually, I, I came up lately with a slogan that all religions are, in fact, service industries rather than some sort of domineering organizations that demand yes. allegiance and demand conformity from people. They're actually supposed that's to be really helping funny. people have like a better that. life. It's yes, what they are. That's right. I really like but that anyway, a service the service industry, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what they are. They're service industries and therefore when you get a priesthood that becomes harmful to the people under its superstitious control or under its you know, spiritual control, then they become yeah. unpleasant and they should reform themselves or uh, or they can be considered to have been become broken institutions and they don't understand what they originally were founded for. Exactly, so but anyway that's a broader exactly question. not only
0: that they will also the Dalai Lama, from the beginning shadow. that he
1: traveled years back, he always said he didn't want to convert people to religion to Buddhism as a religion. And when he gives lectures in the U.S. or anywhere, he always says, don't think that I'm trying to make you into a Buddhist. I don't want you to be a Buddhist. If you learn something but, good about your mind, if you learn something good about your emotions, you learn something good about reality, then use that. it within your own cultural context and stick with Granny's religion. Because if you slip, yeah. if you go over to Buddhism as a religion, and then Granny will be really upset, and also That's you yourself, right. as a child, were a part of this was part of your culture, acculturation, and you'll feel something, some split inside your mind, and it's not good for you. So he, but then and then when he sees someone like me there, he says, "Well, some people can't help it, but never mind that." <laughs> so I mean, So my point is that That's funny, that. Right? Uh, But it is, you know. But so, and then he wrote a book recently called Secular Ethics, in which he tries to argue for an ethic of gentleness and compassion and love and wisdom. Um, based on science, actually, even Western science about how the human being is a mammal and the human infant is helpless for many decades before they can really manage the world or at least a decade. And they depend yes. on the kindness of strangers. When that little, little baby comes out of the womb, then it's like, who, who's this? We <laughs> know it's like, and they don't yes. know who the mother is either. They know from her bloodstream, but they don't know the person. But the face, they get to they get to know, and they get to love the mother. But point is, sure. they're initially strangers, really. And yet, this kindness right. is there, and uh, and they and such. We all were protected for years when we were helpless infants. So, based on that kind of thing about the biology of of uh, humans. He argues that's for right. an ethic of compassion and so on, and in that book, secular ethics, and you know, not as a religious dogma, but a secu- appealing to the secularists. And he always considers secularism actually as if it was a world religion. Uh, you know, it has its dogmatic, its prophet is Richard Dawkins, right? Yes, that's the prophet mm-hmm. of the secular religion, and uh, and Sam yeah. Harris and Richard Dawkins and others, and uh, Daniel Dennett, and. Um, and, uh, they, they, they're like a religion. The Dalai Lama wants to dialogue with them and also get them to really be empirical and rational and not dogmatic materialists, as some of them are, for all too many of them are. So that's the same thing. And I understand Buddhism that way that the, the whole psychology, not only psychology of identity, psychology of positive emotions, psychology of how to clean, cleanse the mind of negative emotions, and then yes. also philosophy, uh, the science of the nature of reality, even more important, and which is actually physics, that means. And uh, yes. shunyata you know, the theory of emptiness and relativity, Pratita Samadpada, is actually physics. It's saying that nature of the world is pure relativity. The Buddha preceded Einstein by 2,500 years as far as talking about sheer relativity of of reality and that there is no absolute that dominates or controls the way reality is. And he also predicted the the infinite divisibility of the atom, that that there's no such thing as an indivisible particle that you can grab hold of and control the universe by manipulating, Mm. etc., Quantum physics is only now just so it was covering. very much
0: a precursor of uh, of quantum physics from that point of view,
1: exactly. And but in, he yeah. did it without machinery, he did it with the machinery of his own neurons, his own brain, exactly. his own mind, exactly. hyper aware of every sub every kind of molecular activity in his own body, which is how enlightenment is defined in the super subtle. Uh, Abhidharma of the Tantrikas. and uh, yeah. so and and then then I uh, Mitchell, I can announce on your show, maybe the first time to a large public, that I yeah. after forty five years of studying Buddhism, I finally realized that the karma theory is a evolutionary biological theory. It's not just some really? kind of religious. A superstitious thing. Oh, maybe like sort of thing. Like maybe I'll believe in God or I won't. Maybe I'll believe in reincarnation or I won't. It's not something yeah. like that. It, it yeah. has a lot of evidence. That people remember previous lives. It fits with the law of the conservation of energy. That uh, yeah. the energy of mind is conserved. It was. It's come from the beginningless of time, and it goes on endlessly. Therefore, you better get it enlightened where you're going to have a blissful time rather than continue no. to suffer on the delusion of egotism. And so yeah. it's a biological theory which includes the mind as part of nature. If the if the Darwinians, like, Darwin and Buddha met, and Darwin said, you know, we're all descended from monkeys, Buddha would have said, sure, man, cool. Not only that, but we all were monkeys. <laughs> Even you, Mister Darwin. Uh, now you're a nice Britisher with yes. a big beard, but you're a baboon, and so was I. <laughs>
0: right. In fact, you right. still look a bit like one, you know. <laughs> but no, I understand. Exactly. I, this is this is very so, interesting. And so, so,
1: you know, to talk about science. So? The karma theory is a biological evolutionary theory, twenty five hundred year or twenty four hundred years before Charles Darwin. Yeah.
0: And I, right, I, I exactly. insist on
1: that. And and they 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 can act like it's just a religious uh, bleep of faith and blind faith. They can keep saying that by dismissing the vast amount of evidence that exists for both theoretical and also personal anecdotal evidence that exists for for, for the continuum of lives that we we are that we all are. But that that, that dismissal doesn't change reality. It's like that's the way dogmatists always are. They can just say, oh, I don't think so, and I'm not going to accept I'm not going to look at that because I'm going to dismiss it ahead of time. And uh, that doesn't change reality, you know. That's like an ostrich switch with his head in the sand, and the butt is out there in the breeze, and, uh, you know, the truck will come and run over it, head in the sand or not.
0: That's right. That's right. No, it's very interesting. But wouldn't you say that the law of karma was really explicated in the West, Bob, through... Um, the law of cause and effects that we have here for every action there's an equal but opposite reaction whether it's equal Absolutely. or not it's still a reaction right
1: and that's why you know the human being is totally embedded in nature with Darwin's big discovery and wasn't just you know brought by deus ex machina yeah. you know like the like the 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 fundamentalist the creation theory. Uh, monotheist, monotheist that he Darwin was trying to escape from but on the other hand, they, went, they escaped a little too far by negating the existence of the mind and the existence yeah. of the soul as an energy, yeah. energetic entity, as an energetic continuum. Right. The point is it's very, that's very exactly subtle. Exactly. That it's not obeys course.
0: the laws of biology, you're saying, like anything else. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, so sure. so, so, the no, mind is great. involved in and, the laws of biology, but yeah. it's at a level of subtlety that the, that the okay. wetware people haven't gotten to, that's all.
0: That's right, that's
1: right. But well, it's wonderful, I'm and I'm digging. so
0: glad that you announced it here uh, for the first time for people <laughs> to hear. I am pleased that's and honored. That I have an
1: it's un- called The Tibetan Book of Inner Science, which I will eventually yes. finish, uh, hopefully, before I croak, if I stay alive, knock on wood, a few more years. And uh, oh, it's God only please. 20 years late, and this will be one of the chapters. <laughs> Many Absolutely. of my books are 20 years late, so <laughs> fret not. Yes. We have to develop patience, obviously. So obviously. Um, thank you
0: for sharing all of that. Along with I'd like to, I'd like to um, ask you a question, uh, kind of a particular question, about sure. His Holiness the Karmapa, and just to kind of delve into for clarity for some people who may not know this or may, may not be aware of somewhat of what is considered manipulation by the Chinese to, if you will, originate and identify the Karmapa as being of their uh, orientation, distinct from the traditional way the Tibetan culture would identify his holiness, the Karmapa. Could you talk about that?
1: Uh, well, the, the Karmapa was identified in the traditional way, actually, by... Uh, Tai Tsering and uh, Gelsa Rinpoche, and Kong Bje the only one yeah. of the four, and initially the even uh, the Shamar Rinpoche agreed to that Karmapa who was found in Tibet and which then the Chinese also agreed to because they thought they would keep him captured and make him dance to their tune and uh, mm-hmm. then then unfortunately the Shamapa created a controversy in that in the in the and the Kagyu school Karmakarju school by breaking away from that agreement and saying there was no, he didn't agree to it, there was another one, and, and there's been a kind of schism within that school, unfortunately. But the, uh, the young Mapa is a marvelous, Ugen uh, uh, Trinle, his name, he lives in Dharamsala, mm-hmm. he escaped from China, from Tibet, and on New Year's Day of uh, 2000, of the millennium, and uh, he has been developing and growing stronger and more, more developed, you know, bringing out his in, his reincarnated knowledge and so forth, writing wonderful books. And yes. um, I think the Chinese have kind of lost leverage over that, and they're very angry about it, actually. He's one yeah. of the, he's on their blacklist 100% because he escaped wow. from them after yeah. they had accepted him, after they had claimed that they're... So it isn't really the Karmapa that the Chinese are falsely manipulating. It is the, the, their claim that in the future they're going to make the next Dalai Lama, they manipulated the Penjian Lama. Is what it was where they really got into a crime. Oh. Nice. Uh, and, and this story has not been well told, actually, because the truth of this story is that there was a moment after the last Penjian Lama passed away or was possibly murdered in the late 80s, um, early 90s, uh, by because of some politics, which I don't want to at length. But he, anyway, he was gone. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the Chinese, to do it properly, the Dalai Lama has to be consulted about any recognition of any Panchen Lama. And they, on um, back channel, they asked him to think about it and communicate with the committee from the Tashilumbu Monastery, the Panchen Lama's monastery, about it, because they wanted to have a real... Uh, Pendu Lama, who the Tibetans would accept as legitimate, and so therefore mm-hmm. they knew, even though they were making an enemy, there was a, a little bit of a thaw about their making of enemy late late eighties, and so they mm-hmm. did. But then, when by the time he was actually found, they had changed and hardened their policy and decided they were going to go full blast enemy of the Dalai Lama. So they were going to wait until he announced the pension lama, according to his recognition, based on the information supplied to him secretly by the committee, and the, the head of the committee called the Dalai Lama and said, "Your Holiness, they're going to purposely not accept the one that you pick, since both of them are in Tibet under their power, and they're going to pick the one that they pick." So, they, because they're scared of the real one, because they think he will rebel against them like the last pension did, and they failed to make a, a, an obedient puppet out of the last pension. Remember, so, mm. so then the so so your wholeness, we will get in a lot of trouble. But we want you to announce the real pension lama in public to the world, and uh, then the, we don't know what will happen to us when you do that. But once you do that, then then that will then the people at least will know who the real one is. So then the Dalai Lama did announce from India that his choice of the Panchen Lama, and then the Chinese arrested that one, and that one has been in prison now since around 1995. I forget exactly what year, but he's been in prison for oh, eight years at least, and his family and he's disappeared, and nobody knows where he is, and it's a real it's a real scandal actually. And then the Chinese wow. picked a, what the all the Tibetans called him the Zuma, the fake pension. And the the, yeah. the Pengen Zuma or Zumi Lama, the fake Lama, and he can't even live in Tibet because the Tibetans don't like him, and he lives in Shanghai or Beijing. And um, the Chinese make it, show him outside like this is our Pengen Lama, but the Tibetans don't accept him. So therefore, it represented that that event represented a moment in the Chinese manipulation of the Tibetans where they no longer tried to have a, a Lama who the Tibetans accepted as legitimate. And then they brainwashed to follow their policy. They gave up on that, and they and they just have someone that they that is their puppet, you know. And even though the yeah. Tibetans don't, and then it begins to serve as a litmus test for Tibetans. They go around monasteries in Tibet, and they with their committees and their troops, and they say, "We want you to pay allegiance to Panchen Lama and denounce the Dalai Lama." And when they don't do that, they then arrest them or brainwash them or torture them or whatever. Mm. It's very, very bad, the situation in Tibet right now. Unfortunately, the Hu Jintao administration and the United Front, which is the agency that opera, um, that uh, controls the minor- so-called minorities in China under Hu Jintao, yeah. the, from that momentum there, just a horrible crackdown is going on. And the very brave Tibetans are still resisting, and their sort of final mode of resistance is these, are these self-immolations. Self immolation wave, which are truly the nonviolent warriors, they are the warriors yeah. who show that the situation is so intolerable that they'd rather give their life than succumb to hatred and kill an enemy you yeah. know so they are that is the that is the ultimate warrior or what I call the cool hero, the cool warrior, the nonviolent yeah. warrior who shows that that it's not worth killing another. Your own life is not worth killing another. You will give your life to others. And that's the real saint, the real heroic thing, I believe. And it sets a lesson for the whole world, actually. Because I always said in my inner revolution book long back that, that, you know, and logically you say that we'll have world peace when the people of the world, more of them, are willing to risk their life not to hurt anybody else and not to kill anybody else or risk or even give it. Yes. Equal and more than nowadays, the, the military people are willing to risk and even give their life while killing other people. And of right. course, the ultimate in that are you know, the suicide bombers, right? Who give their life to blow yeah. up hundred people in a, in a bazaar, or in a mosque, or something, yeah. or in, a, in the you know in a in a discotheque, whatever. Those are the typical military hero who gives their life to harm other people. But the Tibetans, they give it not to harm any other people. That's amazing. I'm amazed by them. Exactly. Really, I'm although well, that's- horrified too. We all are subliminally. There are even some Buddhists who are all mad about it. And they say this is really bad and this is wrong and blah, blah, blah. But actually it's because subliminally it hits our conscience that these yes. people, that we there's nothing we can do for these people who are being so badly genocided and persecuted that they're willing to give their own life to not to become so angry that they would kill some soldiers or kill some some Chinese people. Right. I think right, that's exactly. so admirable. Although, it's if anybody asks me, should I do that, symbol. I would certainly not.
0: No matter what, it's a very powerful symbol. And, you know, a couple of points can be made here, Bob, that are yes. kind of... Uh, let me put it this way. Mm-hmm. On one hand... Yes we very much want to preserve the Tibetan people and the Tibetan culture for very obvious reasons. And also, from a Buddhist point of view, our identity or identification with the varying levels of local custom, of local language, of the country in which we were born, distinct from the more universal perspective. It it begs a conversation if you know what I mean. As does, does, in fact, I interviewed some monks from the Jetpong Monastery at the Tibet House a number of years ago when they were on tour Uh in the United States, and one of the questions I asked was from the point of view of karma, how do you understand what is going on and proceeding with the Tibetan relationship with the Chinese? I'd love to hear you answer, respond to both of these.
1: Well, they, I'm sure they said that it meant that in, in uh, the individuals, you know, the whole concept of collective karma is kind of complicated. But definitely any individual yeah. who gets killed in a class struggle session, in a genocide, in, a, in an invasion, an occupation, in a torture to death or whatever, that person did that to some other persons in some other life. There's no doubt. And every Chinese and every Tibetan, every Tibetan has been reborn as a Chinese. Every Chinese has been reborn as a Tibetan in the infinite past. And they've been different animals and they've killed each other and they've done all this. So it's part of an endless cycle, rather a beginningless cycle. And they they will all completely say that because that's, that's the karma theory. However, the question then becomes not only that that is so, but it becomes how to put a stop to that cycle. And precisely the way to put a stop to that cycle is to not seek revenge for what happened to you and to give your own life away rather than, than, you know, know, feel that it was taken from you and then go and take someone else's life. Be willing to give your own away. And so the Tibetans today, this is why the Dalai Lama nonviolently has responded from the beginning to the Chinese invasion, occupation, genocide, he has. He still says, even though he calls it, as it's made a spade, it is a genocide. He usually tries to be polite. He says it's a cultural genocide, but actually it's yeah. a genocide because the Chinese have gotten so frustrated. that The Tibetans are so, uh, you know, attached to their way of life, their Buddhist way of life, that they are willing to die yeah. for it. They realize yeah. kind of that they they somehow, unless they wipe them out, they're not going to have they 're not going to get in a situation where there 'll be nobody in the future wanting to claim back their freedom, so they they're, unfortunately it 's reaching into it has reached into a kind of extermination side of things the holocaust in short uh, but still yep. he responds nonviolently and he wants them to respond nonviolently and he he 's frightened himself of the immolations. He would never recommend anybody. The Chinese tried to accuse him of doing it. He would never recommend anybody to do it. Absolutely never. Mm -hmm. And he even said Mm -hmm. immediately he didn't think it would be a good idea, it wouldn't be effective, please don't do this. Uh, But he must secretly, too, one can't help but admire the heroism of some person who does that without hurting anybody else It's the key point. They can't be called terrorists because they are not hurting other people. Terrorist means you harm an innocent to get at... Their relation, who's who's your enemy? Do you know what I mean? Who's yeah. who's your fellow soldier? You harm a civilian to get a soldier. Do you know what I mean? Who yeah. who instead of fighting the soldier, that's mm-hmm. terrorism. Yeah. So yeah. they are not terrorists because they're not hurting anybody except themselves. And so, um, well,
0: of you know, course, they're hurting their own family. He, I mean, he's therefore of the offering the Chinese
1: He wants to befriend the person who might want to murder him. He wants yeah. to defend the person who has murdered some other people. It's like the Buddha, you know. Buddha went to Angulimala, who was a mass mur- serial murderer, and he said, look, stop murdering, and uh, and you can even get enlightened. If you stop murdering, You will take a lot to undo the karma of the murders you have done. It'll be a big effort for you, but do it now in this life. Don't wait for, to die a thousand times yeah. in another life for the thousand people look you murder. Look at
0: Ruppa. If you want an example, look at Ruppa for I, one. You know, <laughs> right?
1: exactly. So, so, no. so nobody is hating the Chinese in the movement. Some people. I mean, yes. if you know, if you were there and they came in and shot your children and your lover and your everybody, you might feel yeah. some real serious anger. <laughs> And it would be sure. it would be only the exceptionally developed person not to be able not to do that, but the point is some of these Tibetan people, His horse, Dalai Lama and many of his people are d- developed like that, and some of those others who are not that developed, they are maybe reaching a point in the oppression where they are about to get mad and go and like drop a bomb on somebody, uh, and and they decide no I'm going to do myself in first. I'm going to give myself as a message to them that this is not worth killing each other. So that's really great. I'm trying to undo that karma, you know. You know, karma is a a biological theory that makes it, uh, if, if it's understood, it makes people... Take responsibility for their own situation and the harm that comes to them, in such a way as to try to diminish that harm and not to reflect it back out to others and not to blame outside themselves. To adopt the responsibility themselves and use even harm as an advantage in the path to become free of suffering and to become enlightened. So that's exactly. it's a biological well, theory that has wonderful spiritual output yeah. impact and that's a great well, theory. You know, anyway. It,
0: it's under it's undergirded Bob by the wisdom of neuroscience because when you really look at our hormones and the way they act with the release of such things as cortisol into the bloodstream when we get angry or when we're dominated by fear you see that that's a high toxin into the body. And when we are smiling and when we are laughing and we are loving, we're developing, as you know, the work of Richard Davidson with the Tibetan monks. We're developing the prefrontal cortex, and we're also making our blood healthier, which means that oxygenation is increasing, and our Uh, cells are happy. You know what I mean? Yes, I think Richard
1: and I are giving it, on September seventeenth at you together, uh, on this pl- on this oh, point, really great. Oh,
0: excellent! I, oh, I'm so glad. I'll have to get there then. I'll have to get there. No, it's it's brilliant, and I want to just underscore um, the value I feel that you are bringing forward in this book of <laughs> presenting right the the life ex- and the exemplary life, if you will, of the Dalai Lama and the very real practical application that could be seen of helping China get onto board with kindness of spirit, benevolence right. and generosity. I mean the entire Wonderful. premise of what you're saying I think Thank really you has lost
1: value. So nice to hear music to my ears.
0: <laughs> oh yes. Why no, really, does matter? Right.
1: Yes. Wonderful.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well Robert Thurman, I could speak with you all night about everything. And perhaps we'll do that over dinner sometime. I would love to. But I want to just thank you so much for being a guest.
1: Thank you, too. And I'd be happy to do another show with you anytime you have a gap.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll direct people to you. You too. And all the
1: best to all your listeners and all your friends. Are you still out there in Boulder? Thank you so much. I'm sorry? Are you still out there in Boulder? No, 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 no. I'm right here in New York City, but I'll be out in oh, over I- in
0: a month or two. Yeah.
1: Oh, I see. Okay, good. All right.
0: I'm some right New here. Not far. I'm a stone's throw from the Tibet House.
1: Oh, that's great. Well I look forward to meeting you down <laughs> yeah. there. We have some events. I have a teaching down there on September I think it's September fourth, 9th, and uh, around then, you know. So I'll be okay, there. Right, Take exactly. care. I'll
0: I'll be looking for you.
1: Okay. Okay, all the best. It's a great exhibit at Tibet House. Have you seen that with the calligraphy, painting the Buddhas with calligraphy? It's unbelievable. No. Is it really? longest i have to longest, meander longest,
0: over
1: there. The longest calligraphic scroll in history Tibetan calligraphic scroll in history is there wound up on a table with part of it showing. It's amazing oh, artist, really? really amazing. Tibetan guy. Oh, okay, all the best beautiful and all the best to all the listeners. Okay. Thank you,
0: Bob. Yes, absolutely.
1: Thank you. Thanks okay. again. Wonderful.
0: Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Sure. Bye-bye now. Robert Thurman, the author of many, many books and uh, latest, Why the Dalai Lama Matters, his act of truth, I like that phrase, as the solution for China, Tibet, and the world. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. I... Think this was an opportunity for people to learn something about the nature of what is going on in Tibet. We didn't go into great detail of the suffering of the Tibetan people, but he does so in his book by speaking about a particular man in Tibet, one time a farmer, but the land is basically taken from him by the Chinese, he's driven into the city, he cannot find gainful employment, and Even his friend gets enlisted by the Chinese so he cannot even trust his friend in just normal conversation. This is sort of on the ground kind of difficulties and suffering that so many of the Tibetans still in Tibet are going through. Now of course there is the diaspora. They have come into different parts of the world, like New York City and of course other places and have taken up life here, but truly just like has happened to the Jews, there is a diaspora The people are living outside their homeland and there is pain and suffering that goes with it. The premise of this book is to engage the Chinese leadership into a dialogue that would promote peace between the nations, it's not even looking, interestingly, for total separation from the Chinese. It is not. It is looking for running an autonomous state, as Robert Thurman was sharing with us. Running an autonomous state with an exact parallel with Taiwan and Hong Kong. So the Chinese are very much able to do that it is within their own auspices yet the tibetan culture can be revived and the dalai lama would become the the most prominent spokesperson internationally on behalf of the wisdom and kindness and generosity of the chinese people and i should say really governments and uh it's truly a solution i would love to see it manifest as would Robert Thurman and many, many others, and uh, so it's really a book worth getting hold of. We have it on our website, www.abetterworld.tv. Join our newsletter if you haven't already. I so appreciate your listening to us every week. It's a pleasure to have you. Please send an email with your responses and comments to me directly at mjr at abetterworld.net that's my initials, mjr at abetterworld.net again, thanks for joining us and I look forward to seeing you all next week, we'll be broadcasting on location in the Canadian Rockies Michael Tullinger will be our guest as well as Natasha Colossar, the director of Ideal and Gilles Aino who is their musical director So tune in, and you'll have a wonderful time. Bye-bye.